Yeah, I I think there's an element of you want to boil the ocean, particularly when you're starting out. And it's really difficult to say, well, we're just going to focus on this one narrow target. But there's so much value in that clarity. Hello, and welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast. On this show, we bring you interviews with leading executives at today's rapidly growing B2B tech companies. We dissect the stories, strategies, and journey of CEOs, COOs, CMOs, and more as they share their professional journey. Tune in each week for new episodes from today's leaders. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B tech companies build and run revenue-generating podcasts. We set you up with weekly interviews with your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up and have engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Learn more about launching your podcast at contentallies.com. This episode is brought to you by Ad10, where we do lead to close sales execution for B2B services companies with a technology flair. If you're looking to scale your company from six figures to seven figures of revenue, talk to Ad10. Hey, B2B leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. As you know, I am a co-founder and managing partner of Ad10. And super stoked to have today Chris Sofer. He is the CEO and founder of Where By Us and Letterhead, a little duo of businesses that we're going to learn all kinds of lessons from. So, Chris, you're going to say it better than I do. Who are you and where are you coming from? What do you guys do? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, so Where By Us, we have a network of local media brands around the U.S. that we run that help people kind of stay in touch with their cities, learn what's going on where they live, uh, connect to their their communities. The, the tagline is live like you live here. It's sort of about helping people be better locals. And those businesses are super email newsletter centric. And we actually built a set of software uh, coming out of that business to help other people do email newsletters and turn them into awesome, successful businesses that is called Letterhead. And that's a new product that we just announced in December. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So a uh, newsletter tool, how is this different than, I don't know, everything else out there? I hear about your MailChimps and, you know, my CRM sends newsletters and all, all kinds of stuff. What are you guys doing to, you know, it's a crowded space, right? So you, you must have entered with a reason. Yeah. The thing we see is that there's a lot of engagement happening around email. There's obviously email marketing been around forever. Email is, you know, as old as the computer almost. And you have a huge amount of engagement around email marketing, sending emails to contacts, uh, trying to use email for e-commerce, all these kinds of things. But there's sort of a new type of email, this kind of next generation of email uh, and the way people are using it is really about building a community. It's about trying to get people who share a like-minded interest, who share a niche interest, who want to connect on the same topic and using that community for whatever it is you're trying to do, right? Sometimes it's about news and publishing and journalism, like with what we did at Where By Us. Sometimes you're a marketer. And in addition to just sending out marketing communications, you also want to build a community that's there over time that really lasts of people who care about the same topic or the same idea. And sometimes you're a nonprofit or a community group or a church or a university, and you've got a community of stakeholders who care about this institution or this idea. And sometimes email marketing is great because it's about converting people to do something. But a lot of times what you're actually looking for is not one-time conversion. You're trying to engage people in their inbox on a consistent basis to build that relationship. 
And that relationship is actually worth an increasing amount of money as well, both for those businesses and for advertisers and uh, subscriptions and things like that. And so you're seeing this big move kind of across the internet for, you know, there's engagement on social media, there's uh, sort of big followings people have out in the distributed web, but you're seeing this big movement right now toward first party data. I own my user relationship. I have their email address. I have that direct relationship because there's trust there, right? It, it takes trust to give somebody your email address, or at least it should. And you see people moving to sort of recognize that. So it's a new generation of thinking about kind of how email should work. Not everyone is doing it. It doesn't fit every business, but there's a whole, whole lot of it going on. And the tools that were built for marketing aren't built for newsletters. So we built Letterhead as a thing that's built for newsletters specifically and with a focus on revenue and monetization kind of at the core of it. So for you, when somebody says newsletter, I, I, I think generically that term has been thrown around a lot of like every company thinks like, oh, well, part of my standard email marketing is I need to have a newsletter, quote unquote. It sounds like you're using that in a more advanced and specialized kind of way. So it means something in this context different than my standard marketing drip that I send every Friday to everybody in my database. Absolutely. To us, it means that the email itself is a product that you're sending to people that you want them to engage with. Whereas the traditional marketing drip email, the thing itself is sort of, it's just a means to an end. It's like, I'm dripping you this thing because I want you to schedule a call or I want you to check out this product on my website. And email is just a way for me to be like, hey, check out this product on my website. But an actual newsletter to us is where I'm sending you something that has value. That thing that I'm sending you has its own independent value. Maybe it's interesting. Maybe it's funny. You know, maybe it just makes me feel like I'm a part of a broader community. But it has value in your inbox as its own piece of content and product. Even if you never check out the product on the website, you never spend a dollar, you never click through anywhere, something valuable has been created, even if it's just a feeling of affinity. And in, in a certain way, that's actually sort of an ancient use of the idea of a newsletter going back to like a PTA newsletter that's like handed out on paper or that, you know, comes right. around in your mailbox in your neighborhood. Like that's a much more old school idea, but it's that same idea. It's like there's news in here. The lunch menu is in here. You know, it doesn't matter what the content is necessarily. It's like we are a part of this community and we're experiencing the same information together because we are a part of it. Sometimes I'm trying to get you to do a thing. Sometimes I'm just trying to send you a moment of information and be like, hey, we see you. You're also interested in the same thing that we're interested in. And it's just a regular touch point. So it's really community building is what we call it, even though that also has its own set of definitions. That's what we see people thinking about. How do I build community? Right. Right. Okay, I get it. So then it's not the means to an end to get somebody to click to something else and it just, you know, I bombard them in their inbox. If just experiencing this content and this thing right in front of me is the point, then that's kind of this definition of newsletter. And then the collection of all the people that have that experience is then a community. They're tied together by that content experience. That's the community, right? And it's a sort of about maturing from thinking about all the emails you have as like, I have all these emails. I have a list of emails. Some percentage of those emails you have are people who are highly engaged with you or care about your business or your niche or the topic. And that should be an actual community of passionate people because there's a lot of business value in that. The example I like to use just because it appeals to my nerd interests is like, you know, Best Buy might send you a marketing email being like, hey, this video game is on sale. Cool. That's a marketing email if they're just trying to get you to see that this game is on sale. 
But there's a whole other thing going on, which is there's communities of gamers who are interested in games and talk to them, each other about them all the time. And that community has a lot of purchasing power and value. You see that happening on YouTube and places like that. So, you know, Best Buy ought to have a community newsletter about video games, right? It's a completely different product. It's a part of their marketing, but it serves a very different purpose. It's not about saying this thing's on sale right now. That might be in there, but it's about saying, hey, we all share the same interest and we are also interested in this thing. It's about building affinity. Right. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. It's it's in the sense of like a, a powered by chief sponsor type of of relationship for a community. So I'm in that case, I'm Best Buy and I am making a contribution to the gamer community with actually relevant content that they want to receive and consume. I suppose there therein there's probably some small piece of real estate maybe dedicated to, you know, you can click here and buy the game or, you know, those things, but it would be more on an advertising and I guess CPM and click through kind of idea that supports that content effort. It's just like, I get it. You're sort of shifting the the paradigm a little bit of the whole thing. Yeah. You might, you might build your own newsletter or you might go advertise in other newsletters where there are those audiences, but it's that kind of the recurring engagement, that trusted relationship you build with somebody over time it actually, in the end, becomes a really valuable thing for purchasing. I mean, this is a huge thing with YouTube businesses and podcasts and all these things, right? You follow an audience and they recommend a product or they say, hey, here's this cool new thing or this brand that we're working with. There's likely to be more trust there because there's alignment. We see that with our local newsletters at Where By Us that, you know, it's one thing to see an ad on a billboard or like randomly on the internet, like, hey, there's this restaurant. Like, I don't know, is it any good? Like, I don't know. But if you see, you know, a restaurant appearing in a local newsletter that you've read for years and it's like, hey, there's this cool new restaurant over here. You're like, oh, I'll go check that out because these people know what they're talking about. And that's true when it's just an editorial recommendation. Like, hey, we think you'd like this restaurant. It's also true we have found when it's a paid relationship. Like advertising is not always icky or gross. It doesn't have to be that way. We just like let it be that way on the Internet for convenience's sake and a million other reasons. But we have found that people will say in a lot of our brands, like, I know that this person's an advertiser and they're paying you to do this, but it feels like, you know, it's relevant. It feels more authentic. I'm okay with it being paid because there's that, that trust basis there. So that's really what a newsletter can do in our view is it builds that trust and you can build a whole lot of things on that foundation depending on what you're trying to get done. But Letterhead is sort of about how do we make it way, way easier to build those kind of engaging trust community oriented email products. Because if you're trying to use a traditional email marketing tool for that purpose, it is very difficult to do so. And it's especially difficult to convert that audience into money with things like advertising or subscriptions because the tools are not built for that. So one of the big areas where we've started with that business is helping existing publishers, right? We've got writers, we've got nonprofits, we've got media companies and journalists, all kinds of folks who are using it now, who are using it to sell and manage advertising and sponsorships in their newsletter. They've already got that business. It's already something they're thinking about or doing, but it's really clunky and hard to do it. You have to copy paste these things. There's Google Sheets involved. There's manual metrics you're getting. It's like almost not worth the trouble, even though it's a very high value uh, channel. So what we do is provide them a way to do that. That's much more automated, built for the internet, you know, and so forth. Right. How does this fit in the world of, you know, it's making me think of, I don't know, Patreon and like all these types of different 
there's obviously a movement in the last few years where, you know, individual creators and people of that ilk can try to monetize their content. You know, so is that the kind of world that makes sense here or bringing that to maybe a business audience? Yeah, I, I think there absolutely is a lot of that that's happening, right? One of the challenges that we're really focused on is that you have a lot of tools that are getting built for individual smaller writers and creators at the sort of Patreon level and so forth. And that's pretty exciting because it makes it easy for people who otherwise couldn't get a business started to get a business started. The challenge is that when you look at the data, it's really only a small percentage of the people who are doing that that are able to make like a really good living doing that, right? There have been studies of sort of what's the minimum wage a Patreon creator is earning? And it's like really small for most people. So it's hard for most folks on there to turn that into a business because you know, it's just, there's a whole lot of folks in the competition for a small amount of wallet share, all these other things. So we're really focused on, you know, how do we help existing businesses and teams to do this better? Because while we think a lot of journalism and content creation is going to happen from individuals, the majority of it is still going to stay inside larger brands and businesses and teams because they provide an organizational foundation. And the tools that are getting built are really not for those people. They're really for individuals and so forth. And they don't really work for those larger teams and operations. So we're really focused on that business to business context, teams, organizations, operating businesses, even if it's one or two people that are trying to, to grow, we're less focused on that individual creator. So your founder journey is one where you kind of had that experience that a lot of founders have, particularly in software. It's like, I saw a problem and I wanted to do a better job for people like me and I built the thing, right? And I'm curious then, for founders that have that kind of experience, either maybe it could be in their existing job, their existing business that they own, you know, they identify a problem, they go out to create a solution that then they could market potentially to other people like them. That's two very different experiences of running a business, two entirely different businesses and contexts that you've had to exist in and grow and, and build a team. And I mean, it's just like, there's literally nothing the same between those two worlds. They're both a business and I, like, the similarities stop there. So I just wonder if you talk about some of the stories of that and the learning experiences so far there. It's a great question because there's a lot of advice out there about sort of running a business. It's like, oh, you're gonna have to pivot a bunch of times. And the thing that gets lost in there is like, well, if you're pivoting into something you don't know anything about, you know, are you going to be able to do that? Like, and it's a different set of skills and, and so forth. And you hear all those stories, right? Like Slack, it was a gaming thing. And then it was a workplace tool. And they just, it was just like that. But it wasn't actually just like that, right? I mean, and, you know, the founders will tell you that too. It just sort of gets skipped in the media coverage a lot of the time, right? But it's much more complicated than that. You have to retrain yourself. You have to relearn your customers. You have to redo your pricing, you know? So one of the benefits that we had was, we, whereby us is still around. It's still going. It's still a company. It's a profitable media publishing business. We still have it. We still all work there. Letterhead's just a new product that we built. And we were really fortunate through support from our investors, from our readers, from our advertisers and so forth to be in a business position where we could build out Letterhead inside our company as its own division and team, sort of skunk works it and let them build it out and learn about that with a separate team and so forth. But where it wasn't a hard pivot for the whole entity where everything was riding on it. And, you know, you had to just like completely change years instantly. I think it's really hard to do that. 
And in our case, we had an existing business and we were able to say, let's keep growing that business. Let's keep investing in it. And meanwhile, we can have a small group of people go over here and start working on this new thing that we see as also an opportunity. And putting both those things on the board and being like, okay, both of these are interesting. Let's make sure we divide the attention in an appropriate way that we you know, give each each group power and autonomy, that we're not robbing one to service the other, that really we're investing in both, and that the people who are running both of them have ability to run, that they're not running up against each other. It's really hard to do that still, but that's where we started. And did you find that it's really hard to do two contexts for any given set of people running two different businesses that are totally different things? How did you allocate the human input and time? You know, did you did you really just divide it 100% and some people move over to the other side of the fence? I think a big part of that for us was at the outset saying, what are the competencies and skills we have to have on each side of the business? And how can we make sure that we've written that down, <laughs> drawn it up and made it really clear and that the people who are on each side of the business have some level of autonomy to be able to make decisions and not run it all, everything up the flagpole where then everyone's got competing priorities and we also started separating the resources that way. So we had a separate P&L for each business. We had separate kind of amounts of cash we were setting aside and so forth. So I think you kind of have to do the homework of not just saying, let's go try this out and some people will work on both or whatever. You have to, as much as you can, even if it's like one or two people at the outset, be able to say, you're going to go over here and focus on this and you have the authority to do you know, 99% of the decision making, right? Unless it's some big thing and you're going to go over here and do this. And you have to make that really clear, I think. And I say that like we got it right on the first go. We totally didn't, right? We spent the first couple of months like trying to figure it out and messing up with that and figuring out that there was conflict of, you know, resources or decision making or whatever. But the place we got to was one where even when both teams were quite small, we were able to say, here's the allocation over here and here's the allocation over here. And that was clear to everybody. And we said, these are two businesses. Both are super critical. They both have different dynamics and we're going to run them like they were independent businesses and then bring them together at certain specific moments. When we got to that place, things really started to gel. So I think part of what happens is you're running so quickly at product and sales and these other things that you leave, you forget the cultural elements of it, the human elements of it that, actually make or break the the internal business being able to, to nail it or not because maybe it makes sense in your head certainly made sense in my head oh we're this news, newsletter business we're going to launch a SaaS product but does everybody else in the team get that do they feel like each of their works are equally valued do they feel like you know they're just sort of here for this ride do they feel like nobody really knows what they're doing it's so easy for that stuff to happen we've had all of that happen to us but getting to a place of alignment feels very, very different. And you sort of know it when you see it. You're like, oh, this is clicking. And I think you you often undervalue that or take too long to get to that place because you're so focused on moving fast and building stuff that you forget those elements of alignment of people and the mission and you know and so forth. And then that all translates to sales because if you're not clear on what the value proposition of the product is, you're going to fail. And Letterhead has been through that journey, right? When we initially came out of the gate, we were like, it's a newsletter tool for everybody, right? But you asked exactly the questions that everybody else asked, which is like, well, wait a minute, like I've already got an email tool. How is that different, right? And as we started to figure that out, then it clicked. Right, right. Yeah, figuring out value prop is so critical, so important. You know, it, it's the thing that I think it's so tempting as a founder to go out and solve all problems for everyone. And like, you know, your baby is magical and you can do all kinds of stuff and, you know, imagine all the things we can do, but it dilutes 
your your messaging you know it's so destructive too you know where you kind of just go like and, and in your context i would think i've seen people do this before like it's it's easy to fall in love with the thing that solved your problem and then completely forget that you built it exactly for you and therefore the only messaging that would work is somebody that's exactly the same as you which is precisely no one so you know you can you can get locked up in that a lot yeah, and it's easy to, to mistake one thing for the other and to feel like, you know, this is such a valuable story that, you know, everyone will get it or whatever. But I think often people forget that and often people make the mistake of thinking, you know, oh, well, uh, we learned a lot from this journey and, and that'll take us where we need to go. Like, I think it gives you a little boost. It's like, well, I was my own customer. I get it. You know, I'm, I understand the context. It gives you trust. But it, you have to recognize the point at which that runs out and is no longer useful, right? We've been wrestling with that over with Letterhead over the last few months. Like we brought in customers of different types, you know, who I don't think we ever expected to be selling to, but who have the same need that our software solves. And so there has to be that moment where we say, oh, like we need to we need to change what we're you know what we're building, or we need to add this feature in that we didn't expect because customers are telling us that it's really important to them and so forth. You have to be nimble for that, I think, which can be really hard to do because knowing when you're supposed to be driven by market data and when you're supposed to be driven by your own convictions is really challenging at that early stage, particularly because so much of the advice out there for people who are building these kind of companies is from people who are already successful. So there's success bias built into it because you hear so much less about the companies that totally didn't get it right at all. So you're like, oh, right. well, this is if I just do this, then I'll succeed. But like that's not necessarily right all the time. And I think that goes to the sales piece too. Well, you don't, you don't ever know the story of all the people that, you know, tried your thing and failed. And I think there's that, that classic story of nobody else is doing this. Therefore, it must be a good idea. What if everybody who tried to do that is out of business now? And that's why nobody's doing it, you know? So it, it's nice when you get market validation, you know, one person pays you, then, you know, two, three, four, five companies are paying you and it starts to get that momentum where you go, I can't fail now. Like this thing supports its own weight. You know, the airplane has lift under the wings, but demand gen is so hard. You know, you just kind of think, oh, I'm going to do marketing or I'm going to do sales. But like, literally, what does that mean? Like I have billions of people that potentially could be my customer and I need to find the right ones. And I think, even to this day, you know, 13 businesses later and like thousands of clients and sales. And I'm still often just like, geez, how do I get anybody to care about this? I don't know if, the, if you could relate. but <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there's an element of you want to boil the ocean, particularly when you're starting out. And it's really difficult to say, well, we're just going to focus on this one narrow target. But there's so much value in that clarity right that that you you have to do that if you dig into the stories of people who have been successful that's often in there it's like we started solving this one problem like i, I really like uh this is not in the b2b space but i really like bonobos for that reason like they do a really good job of telling their story like we started with pants men's pants so like men's pants suck they don't fit well there's like not enough types like uh, they're not made well they're not comfortable you know, there's not enough different variations in the fit to sort of the different kinds of variations of people, whatever. So we started making one really good pair of pants and then everything else grew out of that. And you're sort of like, okay, cool, I get it, right? Both 
you make good pants, cool, but also everything comes back to that core vision. But it's true, like you have to start with that and then you can grow outward from it. But it'd be very easy to be like, we're going to build a clothing company for men. But it's like, well, there are a lot of those, so what's different, right? And that one thing you initially did well, I think in many instances, becomes the thing that you that differentiates you even when you're 10 times bigger than that and doing a million things that's still there's still that essence of like the core thing we started out being really good at was the thing that that powers us and it continues to define you or set you apart long after you're offering way more products than that we've been through the middle of that journey right now right with letterhead and relearning that in the software space has been really fun but it's all a new set of challenges but we saw the same thing on the on the local media side because you know, we started out saying, hey, it's a local news thing. And people are like, well, you know, there's already a local news or whatever. But as soon as we got to, you know, live like you live here, we're going to help you be a better local. We're going to help you connect to the community in five minutes or less a day. We get to that kind of place. It becomes really clear. And that ethos continues to drive that business, even as it's grown and has many cities and, you know, other kinds of revenue products. The reason advertisers, you know, do business with us, the reason members sign up for a paid subscription like those things still, it goes back to that core value proposition at some level because it continues to define us, right? But the stuff we did up until we figured that out while we were iterating early and trying to find that fit, you know, that stuff, it doesn't stick with you because it, it didn't land, right? So I think that part is really challenging. And then I think when you go out to sell, you have to understand, well, how much do I stick to that versus how much am I willing to change what I'm doing? to fit this customer. And that can be really hard too. You know, I'll, I'll point into something as I'm a sales guy. I like writing copy, you know, especially, and the interesting thing that you just said for where by us is like in that context, you totally nailed that. It. It's about you, the local, right? It's all about that. And in no context whatsoever in that, newsletter world would you ever start crowing about where by us it's understood as a holding company and a brand that means something to you that nobody else cares about but yet if you read all kinds of SaaS copy almost nobody treats it that way and so you would start to see product name and we and all these things that are not you focus they're simply not about the user that lesson that context i think would be so valuable for people trying to write copy and and market and sell software products nobody gives a damn about your name or what you think about it it's what you do for them and you, you totally brought that together for the newsletter and is it harder in product world i think it's harder for two reasons one is that user research in the product world and in the B2B world in particular is a little bit harder to pull off in a consistent way. It's just a little more complicated because, you know, now money's involved and, you know, it's a business context and so forth. And two, if you're venture funded or you're trying to go out and raise from investors, or you're trying to go out and kind of talk about what you're doing, it's very easy to confuse the venture and investor story with the story that matters to your customers, Right. Because the, the investor story sort of asks you a lot of the time to talk about the journey of the founders and the business and, you know, make these bold claims about the market and so forth. But to your point, the customer can, doesn't care about any of that. It's like, you know, do I have this problem? Does this solve my problem? And like, are these people going to be around in a couple of years before I go build my business on this? Right. Um, and so it's a different yeah, set of considerations. Risk. 
And often yeah, you have platform risk is huge. Absolutely. Like we get that question all the time. Like, well, what's the funding look like? How's this going? Right. Where's, what's the future of this business? Right. And you often in these early stage companies, you have the same people who are doing the fundraising, doing the sales often, if you have like CEO driven sales from the early days and we're in that boat, you know, and, and so it's very hard to take one hat off and put the other one on. I think you have to really recognize that you're doing code switching and then figure out how to, you know, how to make that better. And then on the research side, we got that right with the newsletters because we went out and did a ton of market research and talked to a lot of users. We we literally went out in around Miami and followed people around. We went to their house in the morning and watched them like get their kids ready for school and like rode in the back of the car as they took their kids to school. We went out to happy hour with people. We like followed people on their commute to work. You know, we 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 tried to immerse ourselves in the culture and context of the user so that we could understand well where does this product fit in. So one of the reasons we picked email was all the little idle moments that people check their email as an activity. We said, okay, there can be a kind of a refreshing thing in this inbox that helps with that. This was in 2013, 2014. Email newsletters are a lot sexier now than they were then. Maybe still not that sexy, but but there's a lot more energy in that space. But at the time, you know, it was kind of counterintuitive to put all of these eggs in an email basket. But that was our thesis because we had spent this time with people. So it didn't come out of email is really cool or it has a high ROI or this tech reason. It was literally like we had watched people roll out of bed and check their phones, sit down at their desk and open their email, you know, be waiting on, on the train and like swipe over to their email inbox. And we're like, hmm, this is an interesting way we can meet people here that doesn't make us dependent on social media. And But when we were building, we were going back to those user moments and that was what was driving the product. And we spent so much time with that stuff and literally put it up on the wall and put photos of people and so forth that we would remember those contexts. I think in the B2B space, it's a lot harder to do that and stay committed to it for a whole lot of reasons, right? You're not in front of your customers as much physically. It's harder to like get that kind of access to a business. It's kind of weird. Like, can I come follow you around your office? Like, probably not. So there's a lot of limitations there, right? But, especially now, right? Yeah. You know, now, yeah, especially now. But, you know, we, we tried to invest. Our product leaders at our company did a really good job of establishing a UX research, UXR kind of culture in the company and saying, like, how do we drive from that? And once we got enough customers on the platform that we could observe those trends, you started to see it come back into the culture in exactly the same way that it did on the newsletter side. So I think we went through that valley, the kind of trough of sorrow, where it was like, yeah, we don't know how to do this for software. But then we started to realize, like, okay, you know, you can get to a similar place where that user insight is driving you. You just have to approach it in kind of a different way. And then I don't know. I'm always fascinated by this question of can you actually speed that stuff up if you like listen to this podcast and like, oh, I'm going to go do that? Or do you, does everyone sort of have to touch the hot stove on their own to know that it's hot? Like, I'm, I'm fascinated by that question because I, what do I think about, okay, we're six years in. If I went back knowing what I know now, you know, there are of course things I would do differently. But if someone had walked in the door and told me all of those things six years ago, would I actually have done that many things differently? Or would we have had to learn those by ourselves in order to make them real? I think about that all the time. Because it comes out of the engineering side. Our, our, uh, my co-founder, Rebecca, always talks about this. Like Some stuff can be sped up in time, but some stuff just takes time. It doesn't matter how much money you throw at it. It just requires time. It's not a problem of money or people. It's a problem of we just have to do this for a while. right? And other problems are problems of money or people or capacity or speed. But sometimes things just require time and for you to learn and sort of process and 
think about it in the shower and whatever. And I'm, I'm currently very obsessed with that question of like, which things are which, because it's often hard to know in advance, you know? I have certainly had that experience in my founder journey. I can recall particular conversations where my arrogant young founder self, you know, did not take the advice that would have subsequently saved me a million dollars. But well, now I want to know one of those stories. Um, well, just listen to advisors and mentors and, uh, you know, don't drink too much of your own Kool-Aid. I think we get, all of us get obsessed with this idea that this mythology that we're figuring something out that other people haven't before. And I'm not saying innovation real stuff doesn't happen, but it's a lot less sexy than uh, we think it is, you know, that there's a lot to be learned from the pattern recognition of the past and other experiences. I also appreciate the opposite problem of, you know, mentor whiplash. We talk about that almost with like every guest, you know, everybody has an opinion of what you should do for your business. I, I am often magically paid for my opinion, you know, and uh, I'm not sure. I, sometimes I'll tell people, I'll, why don't we do this? I'll tell you some things, you go try them. And if they're good, then you can pay me for the next batch. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm, I'm circumspect that I don't, I don't know everything in the world, but you do learn over time in the founder seat to utilize your brain to, your brain's a sorting mechanism. It's a categorization machine. And so I, I do think you may not be able to put your finger on why you feel a certain way. You talked about that, that sense of it just being off. You've done this enough times that when you have that sense of it being off, you, you really should pause and figure, you know, what am I, what I'm missing? Cause this doesn't, just doesn't go down like, uh, you know, like uh, something you'd enjoy. So, <laughs> yeah. And there's an element of, difficulty in combining the sort of humility that I think it takes to do it well, or at least that I, that I find appealing in doing this with knowing when those moments are that as a founder or like the visionary behind the business, which like sometimes makes me want to throw up a little bit, but, but is also a real thing, you know, which one is which, right? It's that same kind of question because I think it's good that, that the cult of the single founder who's like always a white dude for whatever reason, just like in the sort of history of the cult of startups, that it's good that that has come, has been, has, has collapsed a little bit and that there have been some high profile flame outs and examples of where it's like, Hey, this is not healthy. I think that's excellent because it was never true, but we put, we always like to put one person on the magazine cover instead of, you know, all the hundred people who are involved in the systems that, you know, and of course it's impossible to do that, but it's good that that's coming apart and that we're starting to see like good things are actually built by messy teams of people messily trying to figure things out always. Right? Like there's almost no exceptions to that at any kind of scale. I think that's very healthy. At the same time, it's totally the imperative of like a founder or somebody running a business to like know when those moments are to your point that things are off and be like, this just isn't right for reasons that I can't necessarily prove to you with data, but that it's just, I can just tell. Like that element has been really hard. And that's where having people along with you, I think is critical. Like I have two co-founders who are awesome. They're very different than I am. We work together super well. They're always pushing me to get out of the tactical business so I can do more of that vision setting, thinking and long-term of the business and so forth. And I'm always hesitant because it feels like this luxury or like feels self-indulgent. Like, well, what the fuck do I know? Like, you know, 
how do I know how to set the vision? Like, I, you know, I, I can't see into the future, right? But that's not the point. The point is just you have to have somebody thinking a few steps ahead and trying to get a sense for where are we pointed in the right direction, right? Do we Are we using the right tools to sort of help us make those decisions? What is the thing we're trying to achieve in a 10-year horizon? And are we on track for that? You have to have that mentality and you have to be okay with trusting that instinct sometimes over the data and figuring out which is which, right? Um, but I think that's the messy business of it that we don't talk about enough because we're so focused on, you know, hustle porn and all this other bullshit. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on your podcast or not. <laughs> I no, I totally get it, and no problem. Yeah, and sometimes some things deserve cursing. Yeah, I I so I do not like the mythology of hustle. You know, I, I'm deeply, deeply concerned with that. I do my 12-hour days sometimes, but. This idea of grind, grind, grind and beat everybody to the ground just to make a billion dollars, not appealing to me. And I don't think that it's, it's healthy for, you know, too many contexts. Elon, God bless. The guy is a phenom and I like following him too, but this is not realistic for most of, most of us. So. <laughs> so, okay, 10 year vision. I mean, that's huge, but, but I know that, uh, you know, people do think that way. Uh, what's, what's next? It's, it's letterhead. There is all kinds of changes in media and all kinds of information, just disruption now. So, I mean, how are you guys thinking that this grows up in the future? I think our first goal is to sort of support and empower the work of community-driven media for, for all of the different purposes that exist there, right? There are people in the media and journalism and publishing industry that we come out of who are trying to figure out how do I build a community that can last so that I can achieve my mission. This exact same question is being asked by nonprofit organizations and for-profit businesses and direct-to-consumer brands. I mean, there's all kinds of applications of that idea. But I think a lot of folks right now are at this moment of thinking about how do I build a community that can last? Because if I can build that community and build a brand and a, a tribe around this thing that that we care about a shared passion, then there's stickiness there. Like these are things that can outlast the vagaries of the internet and which social platform rises and falls and so forth. And as a big part of that, it's about control, about having control over that between the people organizing that community and the people who are a part of it. Um, and not letting too many third parties get in the way with too much agency over you and your relationship to those folks. That's all very meta, like abstract, but I, our goal in the 10-year horizon is that there are way, way, way more independent and successful communities of this type flourishing kind of everywhere because it is possible to build and monetize those communities more easily, right? That's like what we're aiming for. We want there to be thousands and thousands and thousands of new journalistic initiatives and new nonprofit communities that pop up and new you know, newsletters that are written by people who are passionate about a particular weird niche subject that nobody else cares about. Like those things should flourish because it makes the whole ecosystem better. And I think that's true from like a marketing perspective and stuff, because I want advertising and marketing to suck less and be yet less yelly and, and, you know, kind of respect people's time and attention more. I think the community driven approach is, is the way you get there. So I want marketing to be better, but I also want politics and journalism and these other things to be better too. So I think that idea of like community and building that authentic direct relationship, it solves a lot of these problems that exist on the internet, not to get too ab abstract and high, you know, highfalutin about it, but I think it solves a lot of those problems if we can get to that more community-driven place. 
So our 10-year goal is we want to make it way, way easier for people to build those communities and monetize them and turn them into revenue and invest in them for whatever their business purpose is. And I think that looks like a much more diversified, democratized kind of internet where you have all these different communities that are kind of thriving independently because they're not uh, beholden to some big interest. And you know, you're seeing, I think, some proof points of that idea because you see the big social platforms now investing in how do we help writers get paid? How do we help people build their audience on our platform? And what that tells me is, you know, even the folks who are in the business of capturing that see that the trends are going that way. And they're saying, okay, well, how do I build that into my technology? And I think we have to be a little wary of that because, you know, do you want that third party, that big third party to own that and have that capture over that business? It's a really tricky question. But the fact that people are turning their attention toward it just tells us that like that's the generation that we're moving into, where that first party data, that direct relationship is really what's going to be valued. And so we are really interested in how do you use that to empower the little guy and level the playing field? Like That is ultimately the thing that we care about. So the 10-year vision is the playing field is a lot more level. Well... As all 10-year visions go, it's big, it's abstract. We look forward to the 4D chess necessary to get there as founders. And it's impossible uh, to measure. Chris, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. All right, so Chris Sofer, if people resonated with this, want to talk to you, want to talk to Letterhead, best ways, uh, favorite channels to get in touch with you? Email is always great. Obviously, I would say that. Chris at tryletterhead.com uh, is my email address. Would love to chat. We have a newsletter about all of this stuff at Letterhead. Um, our website is tryletterhead.com. Uh, we're also always kicking around on Twitter and stuff like that. But uh, we love to chat with people who are interested in these same kind of community and media and monetization problems. Even if nothing specific comes of it, it's always great to kind of build that community of folks who are interested in it too. So we'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Well, thanks for being with us. Uh, really interesting stuff. Love getting meta with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. You can see the show notes and more links from today's episode at leadersofb2b.com.